morning. Welcome to Harvest Church. We are so glad that you're here this morning. If you're joining us online, we welcome you as well. My name is Mason Yearly, and I'm the student ministry director here, and I'm so excited to have this opportunity and privilege to bring the word this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus 3 this morning. We'll also go into a little bit of Exodus 4. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab some of the hardback ones around the seats around you and uh, be able to follow along with us as we continue in our worship. You know, when I was in fifth grade, I was invited to a childhood friend's birthday party, and we ended up going to a haunted house. And, you know, for fifth grade, that was a little young. We had no adult supervision. Super great idea. And basically what we did was we kind of grouped up in a bunch of our friends, and so it was my best friend Joe and I on this little journey. And we walk into this little log cabin situation, and it's really creepy, really weird. And you get all the way back there, and there's this girl, she pops up out of nowhere. She's like, hey, go in the closet, you know, and that pretty much turned into this, like, maze situation and took us throughout the rest of the house. Now, you know, we're going through it, and the moment that I remember the most was we enter into this dark room. It's completely silent, and, you know, it's pitch black, and we're like, there's got to be something. And we're, we're kind of waiting, and all of a sudden, a car headlights turn their brights on, and they lay on the horn. And we're like, what in the world? Like, what just happened? This is crazy. How did they get this car in here, for one? And two, like, you know, what's going on? So, like, what are we supposed to do? So we, we get into the back seat of this car, and we kind of sit there, kind of thinking, where's this guy going to take us? And the guy breaks character, and he's like, hey, you need to go out the back door. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. So we, we go, and, and, you know, all the things jump out at, at you, and they chase you. Uh, and we get to the exit, and we're so relieved that we powered through, and, uh, you know, we were, I wish we, I could tell you this morning that we looked really cool when we did this, but it was not that at all. It was screaming, high-pitched yells, whatever. It was a terrifying experience. You know, when it comes to fear, we all have different responses to it, right? Fear can cause us to procrastinate. It may cause us to pursue no action at all. It's an uncomfortable feeling a lot of times that causes us to look for solutions either in someone or something else to find comfort in dealing with that emotion. And if I'm honest with you this morning, this has been a topic that has come up in my own life personally this last year as well as just uh, in ministry growing and taking on difficult things. And this passage in particular has come up regularly as I've experienced fear. And I want to uh, just hope that it encourages you this morning and, and uh, bring the word from Exodus 3. And so, without further ado, in this passage this morning, we're going to see Moses who's dealing with fear in all kinds of different ways, right? He's at a crossroads between running from it and giving into that fear or walking into all that God has called him into. So, as we'll see in our story with Moses, we'll see that I can trust in the Lord when I am afraid. I can trust in the Lord when I am afraid. Now, prior to our passage this morning, Moses flees Egypt, right? He had killed this Egyptian who was beating this Israelite slave, and this becomes widespread news, right? The Pharaoh gets word of this, and he tries to pursue Moses to kill him. But Moses escapes, and he makes his way to Midian, where he becomes a shepherd for his future father-in-law. And this is where he's been for the last 40 years. And with all these things in mind, this is where we begin in Exodus chapter 3. And our first point this morning is trusting in God's character reminds me of his promises. 
Trusting in God's character reminds me of his promises. Time and time again, we'll see despite what Moses is feeling, we'll also see God's character on display. So let's dive right in. Exodus 3, verse 1. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and out of the bush, oh, excuse me, and he said, here I am. They said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So right out of the gate, we see Moses out in the wilderness, right? It's a normal day at work, right? He's herding a a flock of sheep, a herd of sheep, if you will, and in his time in exile, right? And suddenly an angel of the Lord appears in a flame of fire out of the midst of this bush, right? And there's something unique about this bush, right? It says um, that it was burning, yet it was not consumed. We can all agree that's completely weird, right? Like normally when things are on fire, things get destroyed. Not great, you know? And so the, the fact that the branches on this thing weren't being destroyed at all, we can all see that that is a miracle. So uh, it puzzles Moses, and he goes to check it out. Now what's so interesting here is that fire is oftentimes a symbolic representation of God's presence. We certainly see that in several parts in Scripture. We see that in Exodus 19, it says that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and at that moment, Mount Sinai was completely wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. We also see that when the Israelites were wandering through the desert in, in um, Exodus, that he appeared to them as a pillar of fire by night. So we see in this very moment that God himself has appeared before Moses. So God calls out to him. He says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Now this is a key phrase here. Right? We just mentioned that God himself is talking to Moses. And so it isn't because of this specific location in Horeb, this mountain area, this, uh, this you know, environment and nature that makes this holy. But it's the fact that the presence of God was meeting with Moses. And that's what made this holy ground. And so shortly after this, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When he hears this, he hides his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Do you see what's happened here? He sees that the God of the universe has just called him out by name, right? And in this miracle of this burning bush, right, he addresses Moses by name and reminds Moses of his authority and his power over nature, as well as addressing the covenant that he has just established with the Israelites. Look at what God says right after this. He says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the lands to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that he may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." So in these few verses, right, we see the heart of God for his people, right? It's worth noting that the Israelites were enslaved by Egypt for 430 
years. Time and time again, generation after generation of asking the question of, God, where are you? Right? You've established this covenant with your people, and yet we've been enslaved for 400 years. Like, what are you doing? Do you even hear our cries? Are you even real? And yet, we go back to verse 6. Right? He remembers his covenant with the Israelites. Right? This isn't like a, oh yeah, like Israel, of course. I, of course I remember you, right? I f- totally forgot. No, rather, this remembrance is a statement that points to his faithfulness and his care. I mean, listen to these statements, right? I've seen the affliction of my people. I have seen the cry of the people and the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Right? We see his goodness by how he cares for Israel. We also see his heart to bless them, right? He wasn't just there to do the bare minimum, just, you know, get them out of slavery, and then, you know, you know I did my part, you'll see you guys later. No, rather, this was, he was alluding to this promised land, this broad land flowing with milk and honey that belonged to all these other nations and how we see God's faithfulness and how he brings them into that land. And as a result, God calls out Moses and he says, you're the guy, right? Come and, and go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now remember, Moses and the Pharaoh didn't necessarily end on great terms last time, right? He was on the Egypt's FBI's most wanted list, right? He kills this Egyptian, in fact, the Pharaoh tries to kill Moses, right? It's not great. They don't have, you know, that close relationship that they might have once had. So the fear that Moses is, the feeling and the fear that, that Moses is feeling at this second is very clear in verse 11. Right? He says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Right? He's like, what? Like me? Are you sure? Like anybody else. Right? Like, like, what kind of authority do I have to go to Pharaoh? Right? This is totally relatable, right? Like, picture you're in your office or, like, wherever you were, you know, your little cubicle, and, and God appears to you in this miraculous way. He calls you out by name. He says, hey, I want you to go and talk to the most powerful person in the world at this time, and then go bring an entire nation out of slavery. And you're like, what, what kind of authority do I have to go to this very powerful person and, and do this, right? It's, and Not to mention it's dangerous, right? It could cost him a lot. Not to mention he has this really comfortable life now as a shepherd. He's with his family. He's got a wife and kids. And so for these reasons, we see Moses immediately object, right, to being chosen by God for this mission. And he doubts that he can be the one to convince the Pharaoh to release the Israelites. We're going to see that theme as we continue this morning, that Moses is going to continue to come up with any sort of doubt as a response to his fear why he shouldn't be the guy, why it should be anybody else but him. And so to this question of who am I, right, what kind of authority do I have to go to Pharaoh, God meets him in this moment. He says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Right, as God has called out, uh, as he has called Moses to this mission, right, he assures Moses that he will have his presence, right, that he'll be with them each and every step of the way. In fact, even alluding to a future ministry when they're wandering in the desert, they're going to be in this exact same location in Horeb, right, kind of pointing to that mountain, that he would serve him on this mountain. So Moses kind of continues this back and forth with God, right? He chimes right back in in 13. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
right? So it's an authority question, right? So, like, who am I, like, to go to Pharaoh, right? And on top of that, if I go to the Israelites and they're like, oh, yeah, well, if God sent you, like, what's his name, right? And so, so Moses is like, all right, well, you know, what's your name? What should I tell them? And listen to what he says. He says to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And when we read that, you know, typically when we hear an introduction, we hear I am, and then my name, I am what I do for work. Uh, if there's a mutual friend or relationship, you might be I am somebody's brother or friend. You know, there should be normally a title that's after that, right? So we even read that, we're like, I am what, right? Like, isn't there more? See, God's introduction is different. Right? He calls himself the I am. When you read that, it's merely just a title, but rather it's a declaration. The little translation of I am, it's a wordplay off of Yahweh, which simply means I am the being one, or I will be. See, God in this moment is declaring that he is the self-existent one. He's the eternal, unique, beginning and the end, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. And he's declaring himself as the I am, the will be who I be one. As I was doing some studying on this passage this past week, one of my favorite pastors and speakers is a guy by the name of Matt Chandler. And I just really loved what he had to say on this passage. He talked about the way in which God reveals himself to Moses shows that he is transcendent and imminent. Transcendent and imminent. He reveals himself as transcendent and that he is completely and totally above us in every aspect of our lives, right? In the way that we experience weakness, right? We are sick. We don't know everything, right? We depend on other things for survival. God is greater. He transcends all of that, right? Because he is the I am, right? He is self-existent. He's unlimited in every way without weakness, and he does not change. And so despite being above us in every way, he's also imminent in that he invites us into relationship with him, right? Even if it's not a full understanding, we can grasp who God is. We can know him intimately in a personal relationship. And a part of this imminence is that God is inviting Moses, a broken and flawed and sinful human, to be used by God to bring about his plan and purposes. Right? God could have easily done it himself, but yet he chose to use Moses to display his goodness and his glory. And in the same way how God uses us as broken and sinful and flawed people to bring about his redemptive plan and to be on mission with him as we share the gospel with others. You know, earlier in the year, our staff had a fun day. Uh, we, we went out in the city. We had some, some good fellowship together. And Micah just always had some really great surprises for us. And among this list of surprises on this day was going to the high ropes course at Union Station. Now, a little fun fact about me. I'm pretty good with heights when it comes to airplanes and, you know, really safe balconies and, you know, firm ground, you know, it's all good until you put me on a harness with a little rope, and that's when I start to shake a little bit. And so, you know, we're walking in, and I'm like, oh, man. Well, first I was like, well, we're going to the aquarium, right? Of course. And then, you know, we kind of take a right, and there's the high ropes course, and so we're gearing up for that, and, you know, they're, they're kind of giving the safety spiel, and I'm like barely listening to them because I'm seeing Elise and Micah just automatically crush it. They're going up there, and they're like, running on all the things, and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm sitting in the back with Nathaniel, just freaking out. And, uh, you know, I'm hearing the safety spiel. In fact, they have you, like, lift your legs up and then hold onto the rope to kind of prove, like, hey, this rope's going to hold you. 
And I'm like, okay, like, that's nice. You know, my confidence is slowly building. And, you know, you, you get up there, and there's the wobbly obstacles that you walk through, and you're like, well, you know, I, I believe this rope's going to hold me, but I'm still not convinced. And that kind of shifted again when I had to go on the zip line, which is 50 feet above the ground. And all I could think about was falling to my death in the Union Station lobby. And uh, to go to the whole other level of the course, you had to take the zip line. And so, you know, the, the red light turns green and kind of pep talk yourself, give yourself a good running head start until you take that leap of faith and you hold on to that rope and just praying that it holds you. And thankfully, I'm here today, no injuries. <laughs> I appreciated that rope so much. Uh, and we had a great, we, honestly, we had a great time. We, we just loved spending time together and conquering a little fear on the way. But in the same way, you know, when we experience fear, we can hang on to the rope of God's character because we know that when he promises something, he will be faithful to fulfill it. Right, when we don't want to move because it feels safer to not step out in faith because we're unsure of what's going to happen, we can rely on the truth of who God is. Truly, when we do step out in faith, it builds our confidence in him and our faith grows. And I'm telling you, when you live on mission for God, you will experience a whole other level of his goodness that only comes when you take that first step. Simple question this morning, do I believe God's promises? Do I believe God's promises? When I'm faced with fear in the midst of challenging situations in my life, do I truly believe that God is who he says he is? When I look in scripture and I see God's character on display, do I believe that the same God who fulfilled his promises throughout the Bible is now the same unchanging God in whom I can place my trust today. Trusting in God's character reminds me of his promises. It's point number one. Point number two. Trusting in God's character reminds me that he is able. Trusting in God's character reminds me that he is able. We'll see in this section here that God backs up what he says about who he is by revealing his power to Moses and that he indeed is able. So right at the end of Exodus 3, God gives some final instructions to Moses. He gives him the blueprint on what to expect. Right? He's to go to the elders of Israel, and then together they're to go to Pharaoh. Right? And they're going to tell him that, that they are going to go take this three-day journey out in the wilderness to go and sacrifice to God. Now obviously the Egyptians weren't going to be totally cool with that. Right? So God then alludes to sending the plagues to destroy Egypt, and as a result the Egyptians would give Israel all of this silver and gold as, uh, as a means to um, compensate them for their, their time in slavery and to get them out of there as fast as possible because they're experiencing all these plagues. And so that's where we kind of pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Right? He gives him the blueprint. He invites him on this mission. Moses is still unsure if he's the guy, right? Who am I? What kind of authority do I have? If I, if I go to them and they ask me what your name is, like what should I tell them? And he continues in this train of thought, and he says in verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Right, so this fear kind of automatically turns into a what-if question, right? Like, okay, well, what kind of authority do I have? But you're still inviting me. Right, so, you know, what if they don't believe me? Or what if they don't listen to me? I'm like, hey, God sent me. And they're like, uh, no, you didn't. You know, there's no way. All these what-if questions and this fear has bled over into a lack of confidence and feelings of inadequacy. And so in this moment, God meets Moses in this feeling by giving him the confidence and strength that only comes from him. And he does this by showing Moses his power. 
Look with me again in verse 2. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. When he put his hand inside his cloak, and he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put it, his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So in just those few verses there, we see two signs, these two miracles. And, and God instructs Moses first to throw down his staff, and it becomes a snake. Now, I know some of you would be totally cool with that snake. You'd be playing with it, picking it up. Not me, and certainly not Moses, right? He runs from it, right? It says that in verse 4, that he ran from it. Totally with you, right? But yet, you can only picture the fear on his face when God tells him, hey, that thing you just ran from, go grab it by the tail, you know? And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no way. Sure enough, he grabs it by the tail, and instantly that snake turns back into his staff. See, what's really important here to grasp in this is that this was actually a very courageous thing for Moses to do. You know, outside of channeling his inner crocodile hunter, right, he's, you know, dealing with the snake and the danger of that. But also in being willing to sacrifice his staff is a big deal, right? This was a means for his work, his livelihood, right? They used that, that staff to herd all the sheep together, right? To get through all the difficult terrain and the, the environment. And then lastly, most importantly for the sheep, but, but even for himself, right? If there was predators in the area that was used as a weapon to, to uh, scare them off or to uh, protect themselves. And so we see that, you know, for... as, as you know, Moses could have just thrown a staff on the ground, and for all he knew, he was never going to get it back. Right? But you see that, that, that little tiny bit of courage to give away his staff, and then God uses it to show his power, despite his fear, to build his confidence and his trust. We see God's power on display over living and non-living things, as well as giving Moses that confidence that his power is greater than the Egyptians. And we see this second miracle, right? God uh, has Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he takes it out, it's completely covered in leprosy. And he gives the command to put it back. He says it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Again, as Moses is afraid, God shows him this miracle because leprosy in ancient Near Eastern culture was considered completely incurable. Once you had leprosy, there was no hope for you. There was no getting better. It was over, right? You had this disease, and that was it. So if the snake was bad, at least he could run away from it for a hot minute. But not this. No, this was a part of his body now, this incurable disease. You can only imagine the fear on his face when he pulls out that hand and he sees it completely covered in leprosy. Then you also see that picture of awe of when he puts his hand back in his cloak and it's instantly healed. Once again, God is showing Moses his power over seemingly impossible things. Talk about using a small guy to do a big task. How about healing a completely incurable disease? He continues in verse 8 and 9. It says, If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. They will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. 
Right? So he tells Moses, you know, you don't, if they don't believe you on these two signs, here's a third one that you'll show them. Right? You'll grab some water from the Nile River, you'll pour it on the dry ground, and it'll be turned into blood. The Nile River was so important to Egyptian culture as it oftentimes represented life and productivity, right? They relied on the Nile for everything, technology, agriculture, transportation, right? So to use the Nile River to function uh, as uh, a means to build Moses' confidence and would then show the people that his power is greater than Egypt. So unlike these two signs, though, he shows Moses physically these signs, right? He does the staff, he shows him uh, right in front of him, and then he does this miracle with his hand. But he only alludes to this future miracle, right? Moses would need to walk into all that God has called him into if he was actually to see this miracle happen. So there's plenty of room still for doubt and what ifs, right? Like, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if I go all the way to Pharaoh and I grab this water from the Nile River and I pour it out and it's still water, you know, that'd be pretty embarrassing for one, but potentially dangerous, right? The consequences of that could be catastrophic. He's running through all the what-ifs and the questions over, why me? What am I supposed to do? Is God truly who he says he is? And to walk in faith and knowing who God is will requ- require extreme faith in believing that in God's faithfulness and power, he's able to use Moses in far greater ways than if he were to run away in disobedience. You know, there was a lady who uh, died in 1916 by the name of Hetty Green. And she's been called America's greatest miser. I didn't know what miser was. Essentially, a miser is someone who hoards their wealth. They're so afraid of losing money that they try to hold on to it as best as they can. In fact, uh, Hetty Green's uh, estate was valued at $100 million when she died in 1916. You can only imagine how much that is in today's age. But she was so miserly that she ate cold oatmeal every day to save the expense of heating the water. This actually got to even more extreme lengths when her son had this severe leg injury. And she spent so much time trying to find all the free clinics that would heal him that the infection that had started in his leg became so bad they had to amputate it. And so you ask the question, why did she do this? Fear. Right? It was fear of losing her wealth, right? She was so concerned about all the what-ifs on losing that money and not having any that she could never even enjoy basic things. And of course, we see the consequences of that and how that affected the relationships around her. And I think for ourselves, you know, we can get in the habit of knowing who God is and believing that God is all-powerful and knowing that he is able, but we can quickly get stuck in the what-ifs of the future, Is God really going to take care of me? Is he going to save my family member? Am I going to meet my spouse? Will he heal that diagnosis? Right? If we're honest, we pray for a while. You know, not losing sight of who God is, but when we don't see that movement with progress, we can tend to lose our trust that God is really going to follow through on his promises. We all wrestle with this tension to some degree. And when we look back on how God has provided in the past, we can still lack that trust and confidence that God is able and will follow through on his promises in the present and the future. Simple question, do I believe that God is able? Do I believe that God is able? Truly reflect on those situations in your life where you're struggling with those what-if questions, or you're not seeing the movement or the progress in an area of your life that you'd like to. You might doubt that God will come through on his promise in some way. 
Really ask yourself, do I really believe that God will follow through on who he says he is? Trusting in God's character reminds me that he is able. That's point number two. Lastly, point number three. Trusting in God's character reminds me to walk in his power. Trusting in God's character reminds me to walk in his power. Continue in verse 10. It says, But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Right, so he chimes right back in with more doubts. And this time it's more about his abilities, right? He's like, well, you know, not in the past and certainly not right now. I am not a great speaker, right? Like there's probably be somebody else that's a great fit and it's not me. I, I can't do that well. He's not convinced that he is the one that God should be sending on this mission. And it's interesting here that he again, God establishes his authority over man's abilities, right? He's like, who made man's mouth? Like I did, Right? Like, he's over all of man's abilities. And so, if Moses' abilities weren't enough, he tells him that, like, hey, go, I'll be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you should say, right? I'll be with you every step of the way. But then, you know, Moses kind of runs out of excuses at this point. He's just like, oh, my Lord, please send someone else, like anybody else, like, not me, I'm out of excuses, and his fear not only leads to his own lack of confidence and not just himself, but he doubts that God's power will actually be enough. He's moved from fear to disobedience and not following what God has asked of him. And we see how God takes that, right? It says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Right? His repetitive objections against God's command to go to Egypt became personal. And yet despite God's anger towards Moses in this moment, instead of saying, well, you know what? Give me enough excuses, like, forget you, I'm going to choose somebody else, I'm going to move on, and somebody else will do it for me, or I'll do it myself. But no, rather, in his patience, he tells him three things. At the end of chapter 4, we see him say, the first one, that his brother Aaron is going to meet him, he's going to go with him and speak for him. Right, rather than being afraid alone, God gave Moses a community with the help of his brother to partner with him in this endeavor. He gives him community. Second thing God says is that not only will he have Aaron, but I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. Again, reminding Moses that he will continue to be present with him and give him the words to say. And lastly, he tells Moses to bring his staff so that he can perform these miracles as signs that God has sent him. Right? The tool that Moses used for his work and his livelihood will now be the instrument in which God uses to free his people. These last few verses, Moses is reminded that despite his fear and inadequacies, that because of God's character and because of his power, that he is able to fulfill in his promises. That, that Moses can then step out in faith and walk in his power. He's not doing this on his own strength, nor is he doing this alone. But God will be his strength and his mouthpiece and the source of his power and the signs that Moses performs to the Israelites and to the Pharaoh. His job in this moment is to be willing to step out in obedience despite the fear and despite the strong feelings against wanting to do it and to walk in the strength and confidence that only comes from him, to be on mission with him and to glorify him in all things. 
And as I've been wrestling with what fear looks like in my own life throughout this year, like I mentioned, this passage in Exodus 3 and 4 have just been good reminders of what it looks like to live in obedience and to walk in faith despite challenging feelings of fear. And I think there are a few steps that we can take this morning to walk in confidence when those feelings arise. And so here are three steps that we can take to more confidently walk in God's power. The first being, cling to the truth of God's word. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Right? When we are faced with fear, we have to first take every thought captive. Right? Whether it be within ourselves or the doubt of God's character, we have to identify whatever that lie is and replace it by turning back to the truth of God's word, which helps to strengthen us, encourage us, remind us of who we are in him, and then bring us back to the promises of God when we are experiencing that fear. So rather than going down the spiral like Moses did, with all of his what-if questions and doubts and excuses, when we take every thought captive and pause and make intentional time to take in the truth of God's word, man, it changes our perspective, right? It grounds our foundation on truth rather than lies. Second step, cast your anxieties on him. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So while we look to the truth of who God is and who we are in him, we must also be real in bringing our anxieties and worries to him. Right? We serve a God who cares for us immensely, and we can also be brutally honest about our worries and fears because he desires that relationship with us. Right? He wants us to cry out to him. Nothing that we feel or experience is, uh, that Nothing that we feel or experience will catch him off, off guard. It, will, it won't surprise him in any way. Right? We see this pattern in the lament psalms, right? That regardless of what the author is feeling, they cry out in full honesty and transparency while also having an unwavering belief that God will do what he said he will do. And thus we can also be real about what we're feeling without sacrificing the truth of who God is in the midst of it. Last step, commune with other believers. Proverbs 27, 17 says, uh, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Right? It's always important to remember that we need other people in our lives to encourage us, to keep us going. Right? Moses certainly did. Right? God gives Moses his brother Aaron to help him and to speak for him in a lot of ways. Right? And in the same way, we need community to help us, to strengthen us and encourage us. Right? Our small group ministry is perfect for this. If you're not plugged into, the one, into one, man, you need to get on board. It is so good, right? We need people in our lives that will care for our souls on a regular basis and call us out when we need it and point us back to truth. As we prepare ourselves for this next ministry year, starting next week, I want us all to really truly in this moment evaluate in our hearts what fear looks like in our lives. Maybe there's a circumstance of some kind involving health or relationship difficulty that you're working through. Maybe it's a new semester of school or a changing career or maybe not even career, but a shift in responsibilities. Maybe it's just something personal, whether it's just uh, growing in your ability to share the gospel with others and the boldness of that, or people-pleasing. Whatever that situation is, if you grasp anything this morning, know that we serve the transcendent God of the universe who is above us in every aspect of our lives, and yet in that is so imminent that he desires a relationship with us 
that he gave himself by sending Christ to die on the cross and rise again on the third day so that we could experience the freedom from our bondage to sin. And this gospel hope radically changes every aspect of our lives. And when we make that decision to follow Christ by putting our faith and trust in him, each one of us can be reminded that I can trust in the Lord when I am afraid. So when we look ahead to the, this next ministry year, may we walk in confidence, not because of anything we've done, but by what he's done for us. So we, we are faced with fear. We can rely on God's character and place our full trust in him because he is faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this example of Moses, that regardless of all of the fears and the doubts and excuses that he tried to conjure up, God, that you still stuck with him in your faithfulness and showed your love. Thank you that despite our fear, despite the challenging things that we experience, God, that you still choose to use us for your glory and for your good. God, in those moments in this next year where we are met with adversity, when we are struggling with fear, God, remind us of your promises. Remind us of your character that we can hold on to the rope of your character because you hold us. God, thank you that you are able, that there is nothing that can throw you off because of your power is greater than all things. And lastly, help us to walk in your power and the confidence that only comes from you when we surrender and we live in obedience as we step out in faith. God, help us in this next year. Be with us as we we seek to worship you and glorify you in all things. In your name I pray.